Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about you, that we might increase in our knowledge of you. And thank you for how it instructs us in your will. We pray, Lord, that tonight as we study, that we would indeed be filled with the knowledge of your will, that we might live lives that are worthy of the Lord Jesus. Help us, help us to be obedient to your word. Uh, help us to understand it. We know that, that understanding it can be challenging for us, but you have written it in a way that, that those who come seeking the Spirit's aid can truly understand it and know you. And so we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good evening. Welcome back. Yes. Just a little bit. How about, how about that? It's better? Okay. I don't want to turn it up too loud. So we are moving on to uh, the next section in Colossians, starting in verse uh, 9. And before we jump into the text, uh, I, I need to make a correction. Uh, I'm not printing you new books, but I'm making a correction, not to the Bible, don't worry. <laughs> we relax. Uh, to my outline. <clears throat> and this is what happens when you spend time studying the Bible. Y you start with one idea and and then you end up, as you, as you study it, you see that idea is being corrected and refined. And so this is the outline that I gave you in your book. Now remember, that outline is not inspired. That's just me making things up. All right? It's just a way for us to understand, to kind of put together how the, how the book works. And that's why when you look at different commentaries and study Bibles and things, all the outlines are just a little bit different. Um, because we're all trying to figure out how do, how do these things fit together. But to some extent, it's sort of arbitrary um, because even for something like a letter, think about it, when I write a letter, I'm not typically thinking, all right, uh, section one, section two. I, I might think about that if I was writing maybe an academic paper, but not if I'm writing a letter or an email or something like that. So, so some of these separations, you could say, well, doesn't that fit under this too? And so, so, just though, this is just a tool for us to understand it. So this is, what I, this is what I gave you. But as I was working through it this week, and I think I even said this in the Wednesday morning study last week, I said, even as I looked at it after last week's study, so between Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, when I started refining what I taught on Tuesday night, you guys are the guinea pigs, right? So you get, you get the dry run, and then I do the really good one on Wednesday morning. Um, <clears throat> I started to, to realize, you know, I don't think some of these separations are, work quite as well as I thought they did, particularly as I started to think about this week and see how things kind of fit together. So here's what I'm, what I'm thinking now. Um, really, the, the, the main change is that I'm, I'm extending kind of the opening of the letter all the way to chapter 1, verse 23, and then the body of the letter starts in verse 24. We can talk about some of why that is, but really the, the big reason is because uh, grammatically, verses 15 to, uh, to 20 or 15 to 23 are really part of the same thought as verses 9 to 14. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, the next time we get together and we're studying that, that section. So, but, uh, and I think verse 14 actually fits better with uh, 14 to 23 than it does 9 to 13, although it's really all kind of one big thing. So we're just going to do 9 to 13 tonight so that I'm, I'm only doing six verses, which I'm shooting myself in the foot because now I'm doing like twice as many for the next time. So, but we're going to do 14 to 23 in two weeks. We're going to do 9 to 13 tonight. So 9 to 13 is uh, Paul's prayer for the Colossians' walk, 
right? He uses this term to walk worthy in, uh, in the prayer. And so this is Paul's prayer for the Colossians' walk or their way of life. And uh, the, the big idea in this prayer is that Paul is praying for the Colossians to know God's will so they'll live lives pleasing to Jesus. And one of the things that we're, we're going to end up talking about and, and that you guys will hopefully discuss in your groups is how the way that Paul prays and the things that Paul prays for, how those line up with the things that we often pray for. Right? It's interesting to think about the things that we pray for and then compare it to the kinds of things that Paul and the other apostles pray for and ask, so am I, do I need to change some of the things I pray for or, or the reasons that I pray for them? Right, so you we'll talk about that in, in your group some. So let's start looking at uh, the passage. I, I, I break the passage down it kind of just in my mind uh, into four major areas, four major sections. Uh, the first part is the basis of Paul's prayer. Uh, the second part is the request of Paul's prayer, so what he asks for. The third part is the purpose of Paul's prayer, so what he's hoping, what he asks for is going to accomplish. And then the last part is the God to whom Paul prays. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll kind of key you in on where those sections are as we go. So we'll start in verse 9. Now remember, he, he's coming off of uh, giving this kind of report of the thanksgiving that he's giving to God because of what he's heard about the Colossians' faith and hope and love. So he starts and he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So, what, what reason for, for this reason also? When you see something like that, you immediately should be looking at what came before, right? For this reason also. So you should be looking at what came, what we looked at in verses 3 to 8 last week. For this reason also. And so the reason that Paul was giving thanks was because of, and this was in... in um, verses 4 and 5, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Right? So the gospel had come to the Colossians uh, and uh, they had come to faith in Christ and that faith uh, in Christ had uh, and was producing love in them, love for all the saints and that was uh, both their faith and their love are rooted in their hope in the gospel. That's what's giving uh, source and power to it, the hope of the gospel. And so, because of what Paul has heard about the Colossians and that he's given thanks to God for, now he's going to pray for them. He says, since the day I, I heard about this, or that we heard about it, so that's him and Timothy, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Where he says that we've not ceased to pray for you, this is similar to, to something that Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, right? Pray without ceasing. And everybody says, how am I supposed to pray without ceasing? Um, that seems re like un unbelievable. And then there's a person who's like, oh, I pray without ceasing. And you're like, liar, liar, pants on fire. You do not pray without ceasing. That's not true. So some people say, well, that just means walking around in kind of an attitude of prayer, I don't know that that's what it means. I, I think it may just be a way of Paul saying, I pray for you consistently. Like, I haven't stopped praying for you. That doesn't mean, if I tell somebody I haven't stopped praying for them, that doesn't mean that I've been only praying for them since the last time I, you know, saw them. It means that I've been praying consistently for them. And I think that's what Paul means. So we've not ceased to pray for you. We've continued diligently to pray for you and to ask, and now this is going to introduce, so he's going to, he, he prays for them and he asks 
And this word that is going to introduce, here's what he's praying. Right? This is the ask. A lot of times I, I feel like, and this is for me too, I feel like I can pray and I can say a whole lot and at the end I'm like, I don't even remember what I actually asked for. Right? Or when we share prayer requests with one another and we spend a lot of time talking about all, all sorts of things, then we get to the end and I want to say, so what exactly do you want us to ask? What do you want us to ask God for? It forces you to, to think and to clarify, this is, this is what I want to see happen. Um, so Paul is very clear on what he wants. And so if, if that, that first part of verse 9 is the basis of Paul's prayer, what God is doing in the, in the Colossians through the gospel, and the request of Paul's prayer starts here. This is what he's asking, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is the ask, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, what does Paul mean by his will? Well, there's a couple different ways that we can understand the idea of God's will. One way is that it's God's sovereign or secret will, right? God's sovereign will are the things that he has determined are going to happen in his divine foreknowledge and providence and sovereignty, the things that God has decreed are going to happen or that he's going to allow to happen. Now, we don't know God's sovereign will until it happens or until he explicitly tells us in the word. So that's not so. Trying to pry into God's secret will, that's, this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that he has revealed are for us and for our children. Right? So we're not trying to pry into the secret things of the Lord. There's things that he's chosen to reveal to us and things that he's chosen not to reveal to us in his purposes. So it's probably not his sovereign will. We don't, we're not to be, um, uh, to be filled with a knowledge of what God has sovereignly, secretly ordained to pass in, in his own uh, in his own timing and for his own purposes. But it could be a reference to God's revealed will. That is, the things that God has revealed about himself, what he's done, and what he desires that is uh, in accordance with his character and plans. Okay? Um, and so, to give you kind of an idea of how these two wills work, in a way, think of something like stealing. Is it God's will that people steal things? Well, uh, according to his revealed will, no. Right? What has he said? He says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. So it's not God's will, in terms of what he's revealed to us, what pleases him, what he desires. It's not God's will that we would steal. But according to his secret sovereign will, he allows stealing to happen. It's not that he wants people to do it, but he, he, he in his sovereignty has allowed his creatures to disobey what he desires. Right? So kind of that's the difference between the, the secret or sovereign will and revealed will. So um, one of the ways, and this is just kind of an, an aside, maybe you're going to talk about this a little bit later, is it talks about God's will. The Bible doesn't really use the term God's will to talk about a secret plan for your life that you are supposed to discover, right? God has a plan for your life, but he never told you that he's going to tell you what it is. What he has told you to do is be obedient to what he's revealed, and so, uh, this is not the idea that, that Paul is praying that the Colossians would be filled 
with the knowledge of what God wills for their life, like who they're going to marry, where they're going to go to college, where they're going to live, what job they're going to take, and all of the other things that we, we usually kind of associate with that kind of an understanding of God's will. I think it refers to God's revealed will. That is the things that God has revealed that are to govern how we love and obey Him and love one another. Ultimately, that's Scripture. That's where God has revealed that. And so, uh, this is not so much a command to listen to the still, small voice, um, which actually in, in Hebrew, if you go back into that, into that place where it says the still, small voice, it's actually the sound of sheer silence. So listening to the sound of sheer silence. We can talk about that later. It's, not, it's, it's, it's listening to the Word of God. That's what it is to be filled with a knowledge of God's will. Um, if you think about the way that the, the, the idea of God's will is used, especially in the New Testament, it's, it's consistently linked to ideas of obedience, right? So, um, rejoice always. Uh, uh, do not cease to pray. Give thanks in all things. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Very tangible things that you're supposed to do. Um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? Very tangible things that he wants uh, us to know, to be obedient to his will. Um, now, I, I think that one of the reasons that we end up, this is just my own little soapbox, and we'll get back to the text for a second. I think one of the reasons we end up drifting into looking for the kind of personalized will of God that we often think of is because we don't actually, we don't actually want to be obedient to what's already there. Right? We feel like if we can discover something that's hidden, that feels personalized to us, then we can convince ourselves that God is... God is telling us to do this, right? And I've totally done this. I could tell you fun stories about how I've done this and been disobedient in the process. I think if we feel like we can discover something hidden about God's will, it will make us feel better about not obeying Scripture, the Scripture that we don't want to obey, because, you know, the, the Holy Spirit told me. So it must be okay, even though He's the one that wrote the book. And so if he tells you something that's not in the book, it's probably not him telling you that. All right, now we'll go back to the text. I, I think this understanding of God's will is actually confirmed if you look down at verse 10. Um, you're going to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects. So if the will of God is what is pleasing to God, what God desires then it makes sense that Paul's going to pray that the Colossians would be filled with a knowledge of what pleases God so that they may live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, Paul's not the only one who's, who's praying this for the uh, Colossians Epaphras. If you go later in the book, uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, it says, is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Is that you might, you might reach a maturity where you understand the will of God. Uh, this phrase, in, uh, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding here, um, probably means something like, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will, uh, and that uh, consists of all the wisdom and understanding or insight that comes from the Spirit. So spiritual... Don't think just kind of vaguely religious, right? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's not usually what it means when you're reading something in the Bible. Think capital S spirit, that is from the Holy Spirit. So you're going to be filled with the knowledge of His will uh, in wisdom and understanding that is, that is from the Spirit. Now, wisdom and understanding of what? Probably God's revelation, given where, what we're talking about, if, if His will is consistent 
with what he's revealed in the scripture, then it's probably talking about um, that we would be filled with wisdom and understanding of God's revelation. What he's revealed is not hidden, but it does require wisdom and understanding. And that is produced by the Holy Spirit to truly understand and know God's will. It's one of the reasons that everybody can read the same Bible, but only some people obey, right? They need the Spirit to open their eyes and illumine their minds to understand what God has written. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2, and uh, verses 10 to 14. Listen to this. It says, these are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So the Spirit knows what's in God. It's, it's His mind. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So we receive the Spirit so that we may understand what God has given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And so, to understand what God has revealed requires a gracious act of the Holy Spirit opening your mind to understand, right? And so you see this in somewhere like Acts 16 where Paul is preaching the gospel and it says, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen to what Paul was saying, to understand it. So that's, that's the ask of Paul's prayer. He's asking that we be filled with the knowledge of his will and he asks for a reason. He gives a purpose for why he's asking this. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and to please him in all respects. So this is the the purpose of Paul's prayer. Why, Why he is praying. Now think about that. I feel like there are a lot of times when I ask things in prayer, but I don't ever really have a good reason for it. That doesn't mean that I can't ask it, right? The Lord invites us to ask him whatever we wish, to ask in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean that he's going to give us everything, right? But he invites us to ask like a father. Like, I don't mind when my kids ask me for things. I say no to them because I know what's good for them. At least I think I do. Uh, But I invite them to ask me. I would much rather have them ask. In fact, there are things that I will, will refuse to give them until they ask. So, but um, we don't often think about, well, why exactly are we asking this? Right? So you think about this in, in, in the book of James. In James 4, uh, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay? But you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask in order to spend it on your selfish desires. And so the reason that we ask can be important. I remember asking things, uh, asking something of God, this is years ago, asking something of God, and it, I, it, it was as if uh, God, by, by like a bullet to my heart, said, why do you think I'm going to give you your idol? That was convicting. I was asking for selfish Motives. So it's interesting. Think about why you ask things. And Paul is very clear on this is why I'm asking this. This is the purpose for which I'm asking this of God. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. These phrases probably describe basically the same thing. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to please Him in all respects. So the second phrase probably explains, further explains the first phrase. It's really one idea. Paul's not asking the Colossians to know His will, uh, to know God's will, 
not just so that they could impress people with how much they know, but so that they could be transformed by it and walk worthy of Jesus. And he states four things, and each of these four things uh, all have uh, ing words that start them, okay? So if you were to, if you were to like, put all of these phrases on, on kind of different lines, these would all line up together and be under, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Right? Uh, so bearing fruit, uh, increase, increasing. Now, this one technically doesn't have an ing, but it's passive, so it really should be being strengthened. There's your ing. And giving thanks. So these are the four, uh, the four uh, things that, that Paul says. This is, this is sort of like a sampling of what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God. And so he's asking, this is what I've been asking for you. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And this is specifically what I'm asking that God is going to produce in you. That your worthy walk is going to be marked by bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, and giving thanks and joyously giving thanks to the Father. Right? Those, those four things. Uh, so first, bearing fruit in every good work. Uh, one thing to notice, um, these first two, bearing fruit and increasing, these are the same words that were used earlier in, uh, in the chapter. He talks about when the gospel came to you, it came just as it is all over the world. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And so here he uses the same words to describe what he wants to see happen uh, within the Colossians themselves. What he wants to see the gospel produce in them, or God to produce in them through Christ and by the Spirit. Now last week, uh, as, as we were walking through this, I think I said in verse 6, I took that to mean, it could, it could mean what God was doing in the Colossians themselves, that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it is in you, as it has been doing in you. But that word in could also mean among. So I said, well, it could also just mean that more and more people are coming to know the Lord through that. And I think that's where I leaned, and now I've changed my mind. And this is good, right? It's good when you're reading the Bible to change your mind if you're being corrected by the Bible. Right? So as I looked through this, and, th and Tom and I were talking about this earlier this week, I said, I think I changed my mind on this. Because as I looked through and I saw, yeah, you know what? Here he's, he's talking about something that's happening in the Colossians. So he's talking about the kind of, uh, the, the bearing fruit and increasing of the gospel at work in the Colossians. So uh, it's always okay to come back and correct what you thought beforehand for what you read later. So bearing fruit in every good work. Remember, Christians are created for good works, right? We're not saved by good works, uh, but we're saved for them. Ephesians 2.10, Titus uh, 2.14. Uh, Ephesians 2 is probably the best place for this. It says, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves it is the gift of God. It is not according to works so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance beforehand. Very clear. We're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith, which will result in good works. Okay. But the good works is, is the fruit of, of God's work in you. It's, it's the outward evidence of the change that God is making in you. So that's one aspect. Living a life that is pleasing to God, that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus, includes bearing the fruit of good works. 
Number two is increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, this does not mean the knowledge about God. It doesn't mean less than that. It means more than that. Okay? So, um, in... Does anybody here speak German? Good, so now you have to believe it, whatever I tell you. But I actually confirmed this with a native German speaker one time. I took German in, in, in high school, and I remember like two things from it. Um, in German, there are two words for no. K-N-O-W, right? Uh, wissen and kennen. And they're used differently. So if you use wissen, it means I know something. I know that. I know a fact, right? If you use kennen, you're saying I know that person personally. I have a personal knowledge of that person, right? So I know that the church is located at 725 Oxford Valley Road, but I, I know my family. And that knowledge is different, right? That's the kind of knowledge that we're getting at here. Now, the, it's not two different Greek words, so I'm not saying that, but that's the idea of what, of what knowledge here is. It's not merely factual knowledge. Though it's not less than that, right? Because if I say something like, I know my wife, it's going to be really hard for me to know her personally and not know anything true about her. So personal knowledge assumes factual knowledge, intellectual knowledge, but it goes beyond that to relational knowledge. That's the kind of knowledge of God that we're talking about here. Um, it's, it's the difference between knowing things about God in the third person, right? He does this, he does that, God is like this, and knowing things about God in the second person. You are like this, you are like that. Right? I read that one time in a little book about theology saying that we ought to aim to think about theology in the second person. So that when we make statements theologically, we're making them to God about God, right? Rather than saying God is glorious, saying God, you are glorious. Right? That's the, the kind of knowledge that, that Paul wants um, the Colossians to increase in. Um, if you want a good book, since I'm always happy to give you good books to read, um, this is a classic. This is one that, uh, this is, there's, there's not many books that I would say everybody needs to read this at some point, other than the Bible, right? This is a book you should all read, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This is a book you need to read. It's about this idea, and Packer makes the same kind of distinction. There's a difference between simply knowing things about God and knowing God. He, he draws a distinction. He's like, there are some people who sit on, on the balcony and watch people walking by and start making comments about them and where they're going and what they may be doing. And then there's the knowledge of the travels of the people who are actually walking by. So that's the kind of knowledge that we want of God as, as pilgrims who are on the way, who are seeking him, not people standing by watching everybody else go by to learn about God. Now, notice here that there's a link between knowing his will and increasing in the knowledge of God, right? So this is not necessarily circular reasoning, right? It's like, well, in order to know his will, you need to know him, or you, if you don't know his will, you're not going to increase in the knowledge of God. How does that work? I think partly it's uh, knowing what pleases God. It's going to lead you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and walking in a manner worthy of, worthy of the Lord is actually going to uh, help you to grow in your knowledge of God and what pleases Him. Um, you think about uh, in uh, John uh, seven seventeen, Jesus says something very similar. He says, 
anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God and whether I speak on my own, right? So Jesus is being challenged at the time. They say, well, prove to us that, this is, that, that you really are who you say you are and this really comes from God. And Jesus says, well, anybody who's willing to obey me, they're going to find out whether or not this is actually from God. And so obedience is a part of increasing in the knowledge of God and actually will lead you, if you're continually being disobedient, it doesn't matter how many books you read, you're not going to know God. So walking in a manner worthy of the Lord means bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, and then being strengthened with all power. Um, and the idea of being strengthened, and now this is, again, like I said, it's passive, so this is not strengthening yourself with all power. This is allowing God to strengthen you with all power. What? All His power, not yours. Think Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. It's Ephesians 6.10. So strengthen with all power according to His glorious might. And then he gives the, the purpose for which he wants uh, them to be strengthened. And it's not so that they can do all sorts of amazing, miraculous, marvelous things. Right? It's not so that this spiritual strength that we receive, uh, that, that, that through it we can do all sorts of mighty works and be warriors for Jesus. The purpose of the spiritual strengthening is so that we would attain steadfastness and patience. Be strengthened with all power for, that's the purpose, why? Steadfastness and patience. That might indicate, if that's what God is saying, you need to be strengthened in such a way that it's going to result in this, that might tell us something about what the Christian life is like. It's not always going to be exciting and thrilling, and it's certainly not going to be easy. It's going to require a patient perseverance in the gospel. Uh, God will strengthen us, but not so that we can uh, do all sorts of outwardly wonderful things that the world says, wow, how amazing. It will be so that we can persevere and be steadfast in the midst of trials and tribulations. Right, you think about, think about the way that, uh, particularly in the early church, uh, the early martyrs in the church um, were, were, were noteworthy for the way that they approached death and martyrdom, right? As they're thrown to the beasts in the, in the Roman arenas. And as, as they go, uh, and it, it infuriated the Romans that these people were so steadfast in their faith. They hated it. They're like, this is not a good show. They just let the lions eat them, right? Because these Christians had been so, uh, so convinced of the reality of what Jesus promised that they're like, great. You know, I don't think they were like really happy about the pain of dying, but they were so enamored with Christ and, and how all-fulfilling and sufficient he was that they're like, death is gain, just like Paul said. They were, they were strengthened with steadfastness in the midst of that trial when, when many others may have fallen away and denied, um, denied the faith. I'm in a class right now where we're reading uh, some of the early writings uh, of, of Christians. So earliest writings of Christians after the Bible, right? So not inspired, but people who, who loved Jesus and who wrote things. 
And um, one of the guys was named Polycarp. And if you ever get a chance to read about Polycarp's martyrdom, you should. This guy was amazing, right? He, he stands in the Roman arena, and, and the, uh, the governor tells him uh, to point to the Christians who were also, the, the, all these Christians, Polycarp was the bishop, right? So he's like the, he's like the senior pastor. He basically says, point to all of the people in your church and say, away with the atheists. They call them atheists because they only believed in one God. Go figure. Uh, and, and so Polycarp turned to the, the crowd that was waiting for all of these people to be, to be killed. Right? Polycarp's about to be martyred. Turns to the crowd and says, away with the atheists. This guy's awesome. <laughs> He's spectacular. So anyway, there's so, so much fun stuff in there. That was free. That has nothing to do with this. Um, but it, it's cool to see that these people were so, so strengthened by their faith in Christ that they had the steadfastness and patience for living the Christian life. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean steadfastness and patience so that you can um, be martyred. For the vast majority of us, it's going to mean, are you steadfast and patient so that you can live your entire life in faithfulness to Christ? I once had a friend of mine, as soon after I became a Christian, said, he and I were talking, and I said, reading accounts of martyrdoms, and I said, this guy's name was Chris. I said, Chris, I don't know if, if it came for me to be martyred. I don't know what I would do. This is very newfound faith. I had, I had no idea. Um, and Chris said, no, Jesus isn't asking you to die for him. He's asking you to live for him, and that's harder. And so we need to be strengthened with all power God's power, not our own, to attain to steadfastness and to patience. That's part of what living a life worthy of the Lord is like, is a steady, patient perseverance in the faith. And then verse 12, and the last one. So if being strengthened is number three, then number four is joyously giving thanks. Um, the word joyously can go uh, either with uh, attaining steadfastness and patience or giving thanks. Um, it, depending on your translation, it may go with either one. So the ESV says uh, the atta- uh, to, attain to, all, uh, to attain to steadfastness and patience with joy. And the New American Standard, which is what we're using, is Uh, joyously giving thanks. Either one works. You have to pick based on context and the way that Paul uses these words elsewhere and stuff. And even as I I worked on it this week, I could go either way. Uh, Both are things that we would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's probably true. We want to be steadfast and patient, but, but joyful in the midst of it but we also want to give thanks joyously. I say neither of them is wrong. Um, we just have to ask, what does Paul more likely mean here? So I, I would lean to, to putting it with steadfastness and patience, partially just because of the way that, that Paul and some of the other writers in, in the New Testament pair the idea of joy in the midst of suffering or, or, or trials that require steadfastness and patience. I read some commentaries that disagreed with that and, and went the other way. So I, I would probably lean towards that, but it, in the end, it's not especially important um, for the way that we interpret the passage. Um, so either way, it makes for good theology. It's not that big of a deal. So joyously giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks is a part of living a life pleasing to the Lord. And that's convicting to me as I studied it this week. Because I I don't think I nearly give thanks the way that I ought to. Like if I really saw the way reality was and how weak and feeble I am and the thousands of unseen, unknown mercies that God showers me with every day, I would be way more thankful than I actually am, right? So I think about this. I feel like I've learned so much about prayer and at the same time have learned absolutely nothing at all because I don't really put it into practice the way I should. 
by being a parent, right, as my, as my kids um, ask me for things or complain about something, like, I never get anything. And I want to be like, I let you live in my house and eat my food. Don't tell me that you don't have anything, right? But this is the exact same thing we do with God. How come you never give me anything? Oh, I'm sorry about making your heart continue to beat, right? I read a book on prayer one time, and the guy said, how, how often do we, do we thank God just for the fact that we have all our mental faculties, right? So we, don't, we don't even think about that. But here he's going to give us some good reasons uh, for why we ought to give thanks to the Father. Verses 12 and 13. Now this is, this is where Paul is kind of, this is where he starts describing the God to whom he's praying, and specifically what this God has done that is uh, worthy of giving him thanks. He says three things. Uh, the Father uh, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, interestingly, and I'll have to go back. This is what my notes say, so I'm going to trust my notes. Uh, I'm pretty sure I remember this correctly. Um, where it says, for he rescued us, I think it's actually just the word who. So it's, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of light? Who rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son? Well, it's interesting. I'm not entirely sure why they put the, the word for in. It makes it sound as if there's a, this kind of this causal idea. And it could be that maybe that's implicit in the way that Paul's writing. But um, I think you also miss kind of the way that, that he, he organizes all this. So it's who qualified us, who rescued us, who transferred us. These three things that God uh, has done. And actually, these things, I was, I was reading in a, in a commentary today, just getting ready for tonight, and, I, and I, this guy was saying something, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I'd never thought about it this way before, that this language kind of mirrors some of the ideas in the Exodus. Right? So the Exodus is something that gets echoed over and over and over again in scriptures to the point where it seems like whenever the, the, the author's uh, particularly the Old Testament, want to talk about how God is going to redeem his people. It uses the language of the Exodus to talk about it, that God is going to make a new Exodus uh, in the future. And then some of the Gospels are kind of organized around this, uh, this idea. So uh, God's qualified us to share in the inheritance. And so this is Exodus language, right? The inheritance for the Jews is the land of Canaan. But here he's talking about He's talking about Christians, and so that the inheritance is, is an eternal inheritance of the, the life uh, that they're going to be given in the new heaven and the new earth, that that's what they're going to inherit, this new creation. And he rescued us from the domain of darkness in the way that, uh, the same way that um, he rescued the people of Israel from uh, enslavement in Egypt, right? This, this kingdom uh, where they were oppressed and persecuted. And he rescued them from the domain of darkness. And then he, he transferred us. So he, in, the, in the way that he, he rescued the, the Jews, he rescues us as believers in Jesus, not from a physical nation, but from spiritual slavery in a world that is ruled by God's great enemy, the devil, the domain of darkness. And, and then he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's not that we get rescued out of this, uh, this, do this domain where we are enslaved and then we get to choose where we want to be citizens. He puts us where we are going to be in a kingdom with a king that we are to show allegiance to. He transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
right? Same way that, that God didn't just bring the people of Israel out and say, now, go do whatever you want. You're good. He said, no, now you're going to be my people, and this is the way you're going to live, and this is the place that I'm going to give you. And he does the same thing with us, right? And that's grace to not let us pick what we want to do, right? He transfers us. He makes us citizens of this new kingdom. For these reasons, we're to give thanks to God, and especially because note in each one that God is the one who's acting. God qualifies us. God rescues us. God transfers us. You don't do anything in the transaction except bring your sin, right? He's the one that does it. That's ample reason to give thanks because if you were left to yourself, you would be left in your sin. Paul makes the same point uh, a little bit differently in, uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 30. He says, by his doing, that's God, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Remember we talked about that, you being in Christ last week. This kind of overarching idea of of salvation is that we are in Christ. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? We're to give thanks and boast in the Lord because it's he who rescued us, not we who were, to use Tom's phrase, smarter than the average bear, and decided it would be a good idea for us to be saved. Now, he did all of this through Christ, the beloved Son, and when Paul gets to this point, he actually sort of launches out uh, into something that's not entirely on topic. He just starts telling us more about Jesus, Right? He was just telling, this is why I give thanks to God. And then he kind of goes off on this sort of rabbit trail, in a sense, to just say, we're just going to, to talk for a minute about who Jesus is, this Jesus who saved us. Uh, and, uh, and that's what he's going to do in verses uh, 14 to 23. And so we're, we're going to come to that in two weeks, the next time we get together.